The Baker Street Readers present The Adventure of the Gloria Scott From the Memoirs of Sherlock Holmes By Arthur Conan Doyle. I have some papers here, said my friend Sherlock Holmes, as we sat one winter's night on either side of the fire. Which I really think, Watson, that it would be worth your while to glance over. These are the documents in the extraordinary case of the glorious Scott. And this is the message which struck Justice of the Peace Trevor dead with horror when he read it. He had picked from a drawer a little tarnished cylinder, and, undoing the tape, he handed me a short note scrawled upon a half-sheet of slate-gray paper. The supply of game for London is going steadily up, it ran. Headkeeper Hudson, we believe, has been now told to receive all orders for flypaper and for preservation of your hen-pheasant's life. As I glanced up from reading this enigmatical message, I saw Holmes chuckling at the expression upon my face. <laughs> You look a little bewildered. I cannot see how such a message as this could inspire horror. It seems to me to be rather grotesque than otherwise. Very likely. And yet the fact remains that the reader, who was a fine, robust old man, was knocked clean down by it, as if it had been the butt-end of a pistol. You arouse my curiosity. But why did you say just now that there were very particular reasons why I should study this case? Because it was the first in which I was ever engaged. I had often endeavored to elicit from my companion what had first turned his mind in the direction of criminal research, but had never caught him before in a communicative humor. Now he sat forward in his armchair and spread out the documents upon his knees. Then he lit his pipe and sat for some time smoking and turning them over. You never heard me talk of Victor Trevor. He was my only friend I made during my two years I was at college. I was never a very sociable fellow, Watson, always rather fond of moping in my rooms and working out my own little methods of thought, so I never mixed much with the men of my year. Bar fencing and boxing, I had few athletic tastes, and then my line of study was quite distinct from that of my other fellows, so that we had no points of contact at all. Trevor was the only man I knew, and that only through the accident of his bull terrier freezing onto my ankle one morning as I went down to chapel. It was a prosaic way of forming a friendship, but it was effective. I was laid by the heels for ten days, but Trevor used to come in and inquire after me. At first it was only a minute's chat, but soon his visits lengthened, and before the end of the term we were close friends. He was a hearty, full-blooded fellow, full of spirits and energy, the very opposite to me in most respects. But we had some subjects in common, and it was a bond of union when I found that he was as friendless as I. Finally, he invited me down to his father's place at Dunnanthorpe in Norfolk, and I accepted his hospitality for a month of the long vacation. Old Trevor was evidently a man of some wealth and consideration, a J.P. and a landed proprietor. 
Dunnenthorpe is a little hamlet just to the north of Langmere, in the country of the Broads. The house was an old-fashioned, widespread, oak-beamed brick building, with a fine lime-lined avenue leading up to it. There was excellent wild duck shooting in the fens, remarkably good fishing, a small but select library taken over, as I understood from a former occupant, and a tolerable cook, so he would be a fastidious man who could not put a pleasant month in there. Trevor Senior was a widower, and my friend his only son. There had been a daughter, I heard, but she had died of diphtheria while on a visit to Birmingham. The father interested me extremely. He was a man of little culture, but with a considerable amount of rude strength, both physically and mentally. He knew hardly any books, but he travelled far and had seen much of the world, and he remembered what he had learned. In person he was a thick-set, burly man with a shock of grizzled hair, a brown, weather-beaten face, and blue eyes which were keen on the verge of fierceness. Yet he had a reputation for kindness and charity on the countryside, and was noted for the leniency of his sentences from the bench. One evening, shortly after my arrival, we were sitting over a glass of port after dinner, when young Trevor began to talk of those habits of observation and inference which I had already formed into a system, although I had not yet appreciated the part they were to play in my life. The old man evidently thought his son was exaggerating in his description of one or two of the trivial feats I had performed. <laughs> Come now, Mr. Holmes. I'm an excellent subject if you can deduce anything from me. I fear there is not very much. I might suggest that you had gone about in some fear of personal attack within the last twelve months. The smile faded from his lips, and he stared at me in great surprise. Well, that's true enough. You know, Victor, when we broke up that poaching gang, they swore to knife us, and Sir Edward Holly has actually been attacked. I have always been on my guard since then, though I have no idea how you knew it. You have a very handsome stick. By the inscription, I observed that you had not had it for more than a year, but you had taken some pains to bore the head of it and pour melted lead into the hole so as to make it a formidable weapon. I argued that you would not take such precautions unless you had some danger to fear. Anything else? You have boxed a good deal in your youth. Right again. How did you know it? Is my nose knocked a little out of the straight? No, it is your ears. They have the peculiar flattening and thicking which marks the boxing man. Anything else? You have done a good deal of digging by your callosities. Made all my money at the goldfields. You have been in New Zealand. Right again? You have visited Japan. Quite true. And you have been most intimately associated with someone whose initials were J.A. and with whom you afterwards were eager to entirely forget. Mr. Trevor stood slowly up, fixed his large blue eyes upon me with a strange, wild stare, then pitched forward with his face among the nutshells which strewed the cloth in a dead faint. You can imagine, Watson, how shocked both his son and I were. His attack did not last long, however, for when we undid his collar and sprinkled the water from one of the finger glasses upon his face, he gave a gasp or two and sat up. 
Oh, boys, said he, forcing a smile. I hope I haven't frightened you. Strong as I look, there is a weak place in my heart, and it does not take much to knock me over. I don't know how you manage this, Mr. Holmes, but it seems to me that all the detectives of fact and fancy would be children to your hands. That's your line of life, sir, and you may take the word of a man who has seen something of the world. And that recommendation, with the exaggerated estimate of my ability with which he prefaced it, was, if you will believe me, Watson, the very first thing which ever made me feel that a profession might be made out of what had, up to that time, been the merest hobby. At the moment, however, I was too concerned at the sudden illness of my host to think of anything else. I hope I have not said something to pain you, said I. Well, you certainly touched upon a rather tender point. Might I ask how you know and how much you know? He spoke now in a half-jesting fashion, but a look of terror still lurked in the back of his eyes. It is simplicity itself. When you barred your arm to draw that fish into the boat, I saw that J.A. had been tattooed in the bend of the elbow. The letters were still legible, but it was perfectly clear from their blurred appearance and from the staining of skin around them that efforts had been made to obliterate them. It was obvious then that those initials had once been familiar to you and that afterwards you wished to forget them. What an eye you have, he cried with a sigh of relief. It is just as you say, but we won't talk of it. Of all ghosts, the ghosts of our old lovers are the worst. Come into the billiard room and have a quiet cigar. From that day, amid all his cordiality, there was always a touch of suspicion in Mr. Trevor's manner towards me. Even his son remarked it. You've given the governor such a turn that he'll never be sure again of what you know and what you don't know. He did not mean to show it, I am sure, but it was so strongly in his mind that it peeped out in every action. At last I became so convinced that I was causing him uneasiness that I drew my visit to a close. On the very day, however, before I left, an incident occurred which proved in the sequel to be of importance. We were sitting out upon the lawn on the garden chairs, the three of us, basking in the sun and admiring the view across the broads, when a maid came out to say that there was a man at the door who wanted to see Mr. Trevor. What is his name? asked my host. He would not give any. What does he want, then? He says that you know him, and that he only wants a moment's conversation. Show him round here. An instant afterwards there appeared a little wizened fellow with a cringing manner and a shambling style of walking. He wore an open jacket, a splotch of tar on the sleeve, a red and black checked shirt, dungaree trousers, and heavy boots badly worn. His face was thin and brown and crafty, with a perpetual smile upon it, which showed an irregular line of yellow teeth, and his crinkled hands were half-closed in a way that is distinctive of sailors. As he came slouching across the lawn, I heard Mr. Trevor make a sort of hiccuping noise in his throat, and jumping out of his chair, he ran into the house. He was back in a moment, and I smelt the strong reek of brandy as he passed me. Well, my man, what can I do for you? The sailor stood looking at him with puckered eyes and with the same loose-lipped smile upon his face. You don't know me? 
Why, dear me, it is Shirley Hudson, said Mr. Trevor in a tone of surprise. Hudson it is, sir. Why, it's thirty year and more since I saw you last. Here you are in your house, and me still picking my salt meat out of the honest cask. Tut! You will find that I have not forgotten old times, cried Mr. Trevor, and walking towards the sailor, he said something in a low voice. Go into the kitchen, he continued out loud, and you will get food and drink. I have no doubt that I shall find you a situation. Thank you, sir, said the seaman, touching his forelock. I'm just off a two-year in an eight-knot tramp, short-handed at that, and I want a rest. I thought I'd either get it with Mr. Beddows or with you. Ah, you know where Mr. Beddows is? Bless you, sir. I know where all my old friends are, said the fellow with a sinister smile, and he slouched off after the maid to the kitchen. Mr. Trevor mumbled something to us about having been shipmate with the man when he was going back to the diggings, and then, leaving us on the lawn, he went indoors. An hour later, when we entered the house, we found him stretched, dead drunk, upon the dining-room sofa. The whole incident left the most ugly impression in my mind, and I was not sorry the next day to leave Dunnanthorpe behind me— for I felt my presence must be a source of embarrassment to my friend. All this occurred during the first month of the long vacation. I went up to my London rooms, where I spent seven weeks work working out a few experiments in organic chemistry. One day, however, when the autumn was far advanced and the vacation drawing to a close, I received a telegram from my friend imploring me to return to Dunnanthorpe and saying he was in great need of my advice and assistance. Of course, I dropped everything and set out for the north once more. He met me with a dog-cart at the station, and I saw at a glance that the last two months had been very trying ones for him. He had grown thin and careworn, and had lost the loud, cheery manner for which he had been remarkable. The governor is dying, were the first words he said. Impossible. What is the matter? Apoplexy. Nervous shock. He's been on the verge all day. I, I doubt if we shall find him alive. I was, as you might think, Watson, horrified at this unexpected news. What has caused it? I asked. Ah, that is the point. Jump in and we can talk it over while we drive. You remember that fellow who came upon the evening before you left us? Uh, perfectly. Do you know who it was that we let into the house that day? I have no idea. It was the devil, Holmes. I stared at him in astonishment. Yes, it was the devil himself. We have not had a peaceful hour since, not one. The governor has never held up his head from that evening, and now the life has been crushed out of him and his heart broken all through this accursed Hudson. What power had he, then? Ah, that is what I would give so much to know. The kindly, charitable, good old governor. How could he have fallen into the clutches of such a ruffian? But I am so glad that you have come, Holmes. I trust very much to your judgment and discretion, and I know that you will advise me for the best. We were dashing along the smooth, white country road, with the long stretch of the broads in front of us glimmering in the red light of the setting sun. 
From a grove upon our left I could already see the high chimneys and the flagstaff which marked the squire's dwelling. My father made the fellow gardener, and then, as that did not satisfy him, he promoted him to butler. The house seemed to be at his mercy, and he wandered about and did what he chose in it. The maids complained of his drunken habits and his vile language. The dad raised their wages all round to recompense them for the annoyance. The fellow would take the boat and my father's best gun and treat himself to little shooting trips. And all this with such a sneering, leering, insolent face that I would have knocked him down twenty times over if he had been a man of my own age. I tell you, Holmes... I have had to keep a tight hold upon myself all this time, and now I'm asking myself whether, if I had let myself go a little more, I might not have been a wiser man. Well, matters went from bad to worse with us, and this animal, Hudson, became more and more intrusive until, at last, on making some insolent reply to my father in my presence one day, I took him by the shoulders and turned him out of the room. He slunk away with a livid face and two venomous eyes, which uttered more threats than his tongue could do. I don't know what passed between the poor dad and him after that, but the dad came to me next day and asked me whether I would mind apologizing to Hudson. I refused, as you can imagine, and asked my father how he could allow such a wretch to take such liberties with himself and his household. Ah, my boy, said he, it is all very well to talk, but you don't know how I'm placed. You shall know, Victor. I'll see that you shall know, come what may. You wouldn't believe harm of your poor old father, would you, lad? He was very much moved and shut himself up in the study all day, where I could see through the window that he was writing busily. That evening... There came what seemed to me to be a grand release, for Hudson told us that he was going to leave us. He walked into the dining room as we sat after dinner, and announced his intention in the thick voice of a half-drunken man. I've had enough of Norfolk. I'll run down to Mr. Beddoes in Hampshire. He'll be as glad to see me as you were, I dare say. You're not going away in an unkind spirit, Hudson, I hope? said my father with a tameness which made my blood boil. I've not had my apology, he said sulkily, glancing in my direction. Victor, you will acknowledge that you have used this worthy fellow rather roughly, said the dad, turning to me. On the contrary, I think that we have both shown extraordinary patience toward him, I answered. Oh, you do, do you? Very good, mate. We'll see about that. He slouched out of the room and half an hour afterwards left the house, leaving my father in a state of pitiable nervousness. Night after night I heard him pacing his room, and it was just as he was recovering his confidence that the blow did at last fall. And how? In a most extraordinary fashion. A letter arrived for my father yesterday evening bearing the Forden Bridge postmark. My father read it, clapped both his hands to his head, and began running round the room in little circles like a man who has been driven out of his senses. When I at last drew him down onto the sofa, 
His mouth and eyelids were all puckered on one side, and I saw that he had had a stroke. Dr. Fordham came over at once. We put him to bed, but the paralysis had spread. He has shown no sign of returning consciousness, and I think that we shall hardly find him alive. You horrify me, Trevor. What then could have been in this letter to cause so dreadful a result? Nothing. There lies the inexplicable part of it. The message was absurd and trivial. Oh, my God, it is as I feared. As he spoke, we came round the curve of the avenue and saw in the fading light that every blind in the house had been drawn down. As we dashed up to the door, my friend's face convulsed with grief. A gentleman in black emerged from it. When did it happen, Doctor? Almost immediately after you left. Did he ever recover consciousness? For an instant before the end. Any message for me? Only that the papers were in the back drawer of the Japanese cabinet. My friend ascended with the doctor to the chamber of death while I remained in the study, turning the whole matter over and over in my head, feeling as sombre as I ever had done in my life. What was the past of this Trevor, pugilist, traveller, and gold digger, and how had he placed himself in the power of this acid-faced seaman? Why, too, should he faint at the allusion to the half-effaced initials upon his arm, and die of fright from a letter he had from Fortinbridge? Then I remembered that Fortinbridge was in Hampshire, and that this Mr. Beddoes, whom the seaman had gone to visit and presumably to blackmail, had also been mentioned as living in Hampshire. The letter, then, might either come from Hudson, the seaman, saying that he had betrayed the guilty secret which appeared to exist, or it might come from Beddoes, warning an old confederate that such a betrayal was imminent. So far it seemed clear enough. But then how could this letter be trivial and grotesque as described by his son? He must have misread it. If so, it must have been one of those ingenious secret codes which mean one thing while they seem to mean another. I must see this letter. If there were a hidden meaning in it, I was confident that I could pluck it forth. For an hour I sat pondering over it in the gloom, until at last a weeping maid brought in a lamp, and close at her heels came my friend Trevor, pale but composed, with these very papers which lie upon my knee held in his grasp. He sat down opposite to me, drew the lamp to the edge of the table, and handed me a short note scribbled, as you see, upon a single sheet of grey paper. The supply of game for London is going steadily up, it ran. Headkeeper Hudson, we believe, has been now told to receive all orders for flypaper and for preservation of your hen pheasant's life. I dare say my face looked as bewildered as yours did just now when I first read this message. Then I reread it very carefully. It was evidently as I had thought, and some secret meaning must lie buried in this strange combination of words. Or it could be that there was some prearranged significance to such phrases such as fly paper and hen pheasant. 
such a meaning would be arbitrary and could not be deduced in any way. And yet I was loath to believe that that was the case, and the presence of the word Hudson seemed to show that the subject of the message was as I had guessed, and that it was from Beddoes rather than the sailor. I tried it backwards, but the combination life's pheasant's hen was not encouraging. Then I tried alternate words, but neither the of four nor supply game London promised to throw any light upon it. Then, in an instant, the key of the riddle was in my hands, and I saw that every third word, beginning with the first, would give a message which might drive old Trevor to despair. It was short and terse, the warning, as I now read it to my companion. The game is up. Hudson has told all, fly for your life. Victor Trevor sank his face into his shaking hands. It must be that, I suppose. This is worse than death, for it means disgrace as well. But what is the meaning of these headkeepers and hen pheasants? It means nothing to the message, but it might mean a good deal to us if we had no other means of discovering the sender. You see that he has begun by writing, The game is, and so on. Afterwards, he had to fulfill the prearranged cipher to fill in any two words in each space. He would naturally use the first words which came to his mind, and if there were so many which referred to sport among them, you may be tolerably sure that he is either an ardent shot or interested in breeding. Do you know anything of this, Beddoes? Why, now that you mention it, I remember that my poor father used to have an invitation from him to shoot over their preserves every autumn. Then it is undoubtedly from him that this note comes. It only remains for us to find out what this secret was, which the sailor Hudson seems to have held over the heads of these two wealthy and respected men. Alas, Holmes, I fear that it is one of sin and shame. But for you... I shall have no secrets. Here is the statement which was drawn up by my father when he knew that the danger from Hudson had become imminent. I found it in the Japanese cabinet, as he told the doctor. Take it and read it to me, for I have neither the strength nor the courage to do it myself. These are the very papers, Watson, which he handed to me, and I will read them to you as I read them in the old study that night to him. They are endorsed outside, as you see, some particulars of the voyage of the bark Gloria Scott, from her leaving Falmouth on the 8th October 1855 to her destruction at north latitude 15 degrees 20 minutes, west longitude 25 degrees 14 minutes on November 6th. It is in the form of a letter, and it runs this way. My dear, dear son. Now that approaching disgrace begins to darken the closing years of my life, I can write with all truth and honesty that it is not the terror of the law, it is not the loss of my possession in the county, nor is it my fall in the eyes of all who have known me, which cuts me to the heart. But it is the thought that you should come to blush for me, you who love me and who have seldom, I hope, had a reason to do other than respect me. But if the blow falls, which is forever hanging over me, then I should wish you to read this. You may know straight from me how far I have been to blame. On the other hand, if all should go well, 
which may kind God Almighty grant, and if by any chance this paper should be still undestroyed and should fall into your hands, I conjure you, by all you hold sacred, by the memory of your dear mother, and by the love which had been between us, to hurl it into the fire and to never give one thought to it again. If then your eye goes on to read this line, I shall know that I shall have already been exposed and dragged from my own, or, as is more likely, for you know that my heart is weak, be lying with my tongue sealed forever in death. In either case, the time for suppression is past, and every word which I shall tell you is the naked truth, and this I swear as I hope for mercy. My name, dear lad, is not Trevor. I was James Armitage in my younger days, you can understand now the shock that it was to me a few weeks ago when your college friend addressed me in words which seemed to imply that he had surmised my secret. As Armitage it was that I entered a London banking house, and as Armitage I was convicted of breaking my country's laws and was sentenced to transportation. Do not think very harshly of me, laddie. It was a debt of honour, so-called, which I had to pay, and I used money which was not my own to do it and the certainty that I could replace it before there could be any possibility of its being missed. The most dreadful ill luck pursued me. The money which I had reckoned upon never came to end. The premature examination of accounts exposed my deficit. The case might have been dealt leniently with, but the laws were more harshly administered thirty years ago than now. And on my twenty-third birthday I found myself chained as a felon, with thirty-seven other convicts in tween decks of the bark glorious Scott, bound for Australia. It was the year fifty-five when the Crimean War was at its height, and the old convict ships had been largely used as transports in the Black Sea. The government was compelled, therefore, to use smaller and less suitable vessels for sending out their prisoners. The glorious Scott had been in the Chinese tea trade, but she was an old-fashioned, heavy-bowed, broad-beamed craft, and the new clippers had cut her out. She was a 500-ton boat, and besides her 38 jailbirds, she carried 26 of a crew, 18 soldiers, captain, three mates, a doctor, a chaplain, and four warders. Nearly a hundred souls were in her, all told, when we set sail from Falmouth. The partitions between the cells of the convicts, instead of being of thick oak, as is usual in convict ships, were quite thin and frail. The man next to me, upon the aft side, was one whom I had particularly noticed when we were led down the quay. He was a young man with a clear, airless face, a long, thin nose, and rather nutcracker jaws. He carried his head very jauntily in the air, had a swaggering style of walking, and was, above all else, remarkable for his extraordinary height. I don't think any of our heads would have come up to his shoulder, and I am sure that he could not have measured less than six and a half feet. It was strange among so many sad and weary faces to see what one which was full of energy and resolution. The sight of it was to me like a fire in a snowstorm. I was glad then to find that he was my neighbour, and gladder still when, in the dead of the night, I heard a whisper close to my ear and found that he had managed to cut an opening in the board which separated us. Hello, chummy, said he. What's your name, and what are you here for? I answered him and asked in turn who I was talking with. I'm Jack Prendergast, and by God, you'll learn to bless my name before you're done with me. I remembered hearing of his case, for it was one which had made an immense sensation throughout the country some time before my own arrest. He was a man of good family and of great ability, of incurably vicious habits, who had, by an ingenious system of fraud, obtained huge sums of money from the leading London merchants. Ha-ha! You remember my case! 
Very well indeed. Then maybe you'll remember something queer about it. What was that then? I'd nearly had a quarter of a million, hadn't I? And so it was said. None was recovered, eh? No. Well, where do you suppose the balance is? I've no idea, said I. Right between my finger and thumb? <laughs> By God, I've got more pounds to my name than you've hairs on your head. And if you've money, my son, and know how to handle it and spread it, you can do anything. Now, you don't think it likely that a man who could do anything is going to wear his breeches out, sitting in that stinking hold of a rat Gutted, beetle-ridden, mouldy old coffin of a china coaster. No, sir. Such a man will look after himself and will look after his chums. You may lay to that. You hold on to him, and you may kiss the book that he'll haul you through. That was his style of talk, and at first I thought it meant nothing. But after a while, when he had tested me and sworn me in with all possible solemnity, he led me to understand that there really was a plot to gain command of the vessel. A dozen of the prisoners had hatched it before they came aboard. Prendergast was the leader, and his money was the motive power. I'd a partner, a rare good man, as true as a stop to a barrel. He'd got the dibs he has, and where do you think he is at this moment? Why, he's the chaplain of this ship, the chaplain no less. Came aboard with a black coat, and his papers right, and money enough in his box to buy the thing right up, from keel to main truck. The crew are his, body and soul. He could buy him at so much a gross with a cash discount, and he did it before ever they signed on. He's got two of the warders and Mercer, the second mate, and he'd get the captain himself if he thought him worth it. What are we to do then? Ha! Huh. What do you think? We'll make the coats of some of these soldiers redder than ever the tailor did. But they are armed. And so shall we be, my boy. There's a brace of pistols for every mother's son of us. And if we can't carry this ship with the crew at our back, ha, it's time we were all sent to a young Mrs. Boarding School. <laughs> you speak to your mate upon the left tonight and see if he is to be trusted. I did so, and found that my other neighbour to be a young fellow in much the same position as myself, whose crime had been forgery. His name was Evans, but he afterwards changed it like myself, and he is now a rich and prosperous man in the south of England. He was ready enough to join the conspiracy as the only means of saving ourselves. Before we had crossed the bay, there were only two of the prisoners who were not in the secret. One of these was of weak mind, and we did not dare to trust him. And the other was suffering from jaundice and could not be of any use to us. From the beginning, there was really nothing to prevent us from taking possession of the ship. The crew were a set of ruffians, specially picked for the job. The sham chaplain came into our cells to exhort us, carrying a black bag supposed to be full of tracts. So often did he come that by the third day we had each stowed away at the foot of our beds a file, a brace of pistols, a pound of powder and twenty slugs. Two of the warders were agents of Prendergast, and the second mate was his right-hand man. The captain, the two mates, two warders, Lieutenant Martin, and his eighteen soldiers and the doctor were all that we had against us. Yet, safe as it was, we determined to neglect no precaution and to make our attack suddenly by night. It came, however, more quickly than we expected, and in this way. One evening, about the third week after our start, the doctor had come down to see one of the prisoners who was ill, and putting his hand down on the bottom of his bunk, he felt the outline of the pistols. If he had been silent, he might have blown the whole thing, 
but he was a nervous little chap, so he gave a cry of surprise and turned so pale that the man knew what was up in an instant and seized him. He was gagged before he could give the alarm and tied down upon the bed. He had unlocked the door that led to the deck, and we were through it in a rush. The two sentries were shot down, and so was a corporal who came running to see what was the matter. There were two more soldiers at the door of the stateroom, and their muskets seemed not to be loaded, for they never fired upon us, and they were shot while trying to fix their bayonets. Then we rushed on into the captain's cabin, but as we pushed open the door, there was an explosion from within, and there he lay, his brains smeared over the chart of the Atlantic which was pinned upon the table, while the chaplain stood with a smoking pistol in his hand at his elbow. The two mates had both been seized by the crew, and the whole business seemed to be settled. The stateroom was next the cabin, and we flocked in there and flopped down on the settees, all speaking together, for we were just mad with the feeling that we were free once more. There were lockers all round, and Wilson, the sham chaplain, knocked one of them in and pulled out a dozen of brown sherry, cracked off the necks of the bottles, poured the stuff out into tumblers, and were just tossing them off, when in an instant, without warning, there came the roar of muskets in our ears, and the saloon was so full of smoke that we could not see across the table. When it cleared again, the place was a shambles. Wilson and eight others were wriggling on the top of each other on the floor, and the blood and the brown sherry on that table turned me sick now when I think of it. We were so cowed by the sight that I think we should have given the job up if it had not been for Prendergast. He bellowed like a bull and rushed for the door with all that were left alive at his heels. Out we ran, and there on the poop were the lieutenant and ten of his men, the swing skylights above the saloon table had been a bit open, and they had fired on us through the slit. We got on them before they could load, and they stood to it like men, but we had the upper end of them, and in five minutes it was all over. My God, was there ever a slaughterhouse like that ship? Prendergast was like a raging devil, and he picked the soldiers up as if they had been children and threw them overboard, alive or dead. "'There was one sergeant that was horribly wounded, "'and yet he kept on swimming for a surprising time "'till someone in mercy blew out his brains. "'The fighting was over. "'There was no one left of our enemies "'except just the warders, the mates, and the doctor. "'It was over them that the great quarrel arose. "'There were many of us who were glad enough "'to win back our freedom, "'and yet who had no wish to have murder on our souls. "'It was one thing to knock the soldiers over "'with their muskets in their hands, it was another to stand by while men were being killed in cold blood. Eight of us, five convicts and three sailors, said that we would not see it done. There was no moving Prendergast and those who were with him. Our only chance of safety lay in making a clean job of it, said he, and he would not leave a tongue with power to wag in a witness box. Nearly came to our sharing the fate of the prisoners, but at last he said that if we wished we might take a boat and go. We jumped at the offer for we were already sick of these bloodthirsty doings. We saw that there would be worse before it was done. We were given a suit of sailors' togs each, a barrel of water, two casks, one of junk and one of biscuits, and a compass. Prendergast threw us over a chart, told us that we were shipwrecked mariners whose ship had foundered at latitude 15 degrees north and longitude 25 degrees west, and then cut the painter and let us go. Now I come to the most surprising part of my story, my dear son. The seamen had hauled the foreyard aback during the rising, but now as we left them they brought it square again, and as there was a light wind from the north and east, the bark began to draw steadily away from us. 
Our boat lay, rising and falling upon the long, smooth rollers, and Evans and I, who were the most educated of the party, were sitting in the sheets, working out our position and planning what coast we should make for. It was a nice question, for the Cape de Verdes were about 500 miles to the north of us, and the African coast about 700 to the east. On the whole, as the wind was coming round to the north, we thought that Sierra Leone might be best, and turned our head in that direction, the bark being at that time nearly hull down on our starboard quarter. Suddenly, as we looked at her, we saw a dense black cloud of smoke shoot up from her, which hung like a monstrous tree upon the skyline. A few seconds later, a roar like thunder burst upon our ears, and as the smoke thinned away, there was no sign left of the glorious Scott. In an instant, we swept the boat's head round again and pulled with all our strength for the place where the haze still trailing over the water marked the scene of the catastrophe. It was a long hour before we reached it. At first, we feared that we had come too late to save anyone. A splintered boat and a number of crates and fragments of spars rising and falling on the waves showed us where the vessel had foundered. There was no sign of life, and we had turned away in despair when we heard a cry for help and saw at some distance a piece of wreckage with a man lying stretched across it. When we pulled him aboard the boat, he proved to be a young seaman of the name of Hudson, so burned and exhausted that he could give us no account of what had happened until the following morning. It seemed that after we had left... Prendergast and his gang had proceeded to put to death the five remaining prisoners. The two warders had been shot and thrown overboard, and so also had the third mate. Prendergast then descended into the tween decks and with his own hands cut the throat of the unfortunate surgeon. There only remained the first mate, who was a bold and active man. When he saw the convict approaching him with the bloody knife in his hand, he kicked off his bonds, which he had somehow contrived to loosen, and rushing down the deck he plunged into the afterhold. A dozen convicts who descended with their pistols in search of him found him with a matchbox in his hand, seated beside an open powder barrel, which was one of a hundred carried on board, and swearing that he would blow all hands up if he were in any way molested. An instant later the explosion occurred, though Hudson thought it was caused by the misdirected bullet of one of the convicts rather than the mate's match. Be the cause what it may, it was the end of the glorious Scott and of the rabble who held command of her. Such, in a few words, my dear boy, is the history of this terrible business in which I was involved. Next day we were picked up by the brig Hotspur, bound for Australia, whose captain found no difficulty in believing that we were the survivors of a passenger ship which had foundered. The transport ship Gloria Scott was set down by the Admiralty as being lost at sea, and no word has ever leaked out as to her true fate. After an excellent voyage, the Hotspur landed us at Sydney, where Evans and I changed our names and made our way to the diggings, where, among the crowds who were gathered from all nations, we had no difficulty in losing our former identities. The rest I need not relate. We prospered, we travelled, we came back as rich colonials to England, and we bought country estates. For more than twenty years we have led peaceful and useful lives. We hope that our past was forever buried. Imagine then my feelings when in the seaman who came to us I recognized instantly the man who had been picked off the wreck. He had tracked us down somehow, had set himself to live upon our fears. You will understand now how it was that I strove to keep the peace with him, and you will in some measure sympathize with me and the fears which fill me, now that he has gone from me to his other victim with threats upon his tongue. Underneath is written in a hand so shaky as to be hardly legible. Meadows. Writes in cipher to say H has told all. 
sweep. Lord, have mercy on our souls. That was the narrative which I read that night to young Trevor. And I think, Watson, that under the circumstances it was a dramatic one. The good fellow was heartbroken at it, and went out to the Tarai tea planting, where I hear he is doing well. As to the sailor and Beddoes, neither of them was ever heard of again after that day on which the letter of warning was written. They both disappeared utterly and completely. No complaint had been lodged with the police, so that Beddoes had mistaken a threat for a deed. Hudson had been seen lurking about, and it was believed by the police that he had done away with Beddoes and had fled. For myself, I believe that the truth was exactly the opposite. I think that it is most probable that Beddoes, pushed to desperation and believing himself to already have been betrayed, had revenged himself upon Hudson, and had fled from the country with as much money as he could lay his hands on. Those are the facts of the case, Doctor, and if they are of any use to your collection, I am sure that they are very heartily at your service. The Adventure of the Glorious Scott With James Gelter as Sherlock Holmes, Hudson, and the Doctor Tony Grobe as Dr. Watson and Old Trevor Featuring Sam Murphy as Victor Trevor Jonathan Kinnersley as Jack Prendergast And Kirby Landers as the Maid the Baker Street theme, performed by Jonathan Kinnersley. Produced by James Gelter, Tony Grobe, and Kirby Landers. Directed by James Gelter. Well, hello, and welcome to... What did we decide to call this, Tony? Uh, Baker Street Readers After Dark... <laughs> so you got to make sure you listen to the episode just so the sun sets right as the story there we go after the read okay welcome to after the read where we discuss what it is you just heard i'm jay or james gelter you can call me jay um with me is tony Grove hello and sam murphy hello our special guest so uh, thank you for listening to the first episode, the inaugural episode of the Baker Street Readers podcast. Um, thank you for signing up for the Patreon in order to enjoy this. A special thanks to our detective level of patrons, who are Anna Barons. Anna, you can email me if I got that wrong. Don Grobe and Holly Kennedy, thank you. If uh, you are a Baker Street irregular level on Patreon, giving $5, uh, you're listening to this uh, episode. Our next episode will be The Adventure of the Crooked Man, uh, which will be for constables and detectives only. If you want to switch from being an irregular to a constable and detective before that episode is released, by all means, do so. Enough of that business. Let's talk The Glorious Scott. Mm. The Glorious Scott is uh, from the collection The Memoirs of Sherlock Holmes, which is the second collection. It was first published in April 1893. Tony, do the math. How long ago was that? Good Lord. Uh, 127 years? 127 years. Sam's nodding as if he knew that <laughs> the whole time. 
it's kind of an interesting one. I mean, you guys can just share general thoughts and feelings about this one. It's an interesting one in that it's a story from before Watson was uh, working with Holmes. So it's uh, it's told from Holmes's perspective. Yeah. Um, Watson basically is just sitting and listening in rapt attention while this is all being laid out for him. Yeah. It's also a little interesting to me because it's one of those mysteries where, you know, Holmes, Holmes decoded the letter, but other than that, had no effect whatsoever on, right. on the events that unf- unfolded. Yeah, he's like Indiana Jones in the first Indiana Jones movie. If yeah. he hadn't been there, everything would have happened the exact same way. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, I mean, yeah, and it should be noted that uh, chronologically, this is the first story uh, that we ever hear of Sherlock Holmes. Mm. Um, it's his very earliest adventure. Earlier than the Musgrave Ritual? Yes, Musgrave Ritual is his first case as an actual official detective. Okay. Although you could say that Musgrave Ritual is really his first case, and this was just a thing he was at. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> I suppose. But that's why that's one of the reasons why this collection is called The Memoirs of Sherlock Holmes, because it's the first collection, The Adventures of Sherlock Holmes, all happen in order. And all happen while Watson and Holmes are living together. And then in this one, Conan Doyle starts jumping around, being like, well, this one happened, you know, before the stuff in the adventures. This one happened before I met Holmes. And he starts playing around. And then he does that through, I think, through the the rest of the series. He jumps around and does cases that... uh, happened before or after or whenever it it really comes down to does it make sense for watson to have a wife in this story or not and then he chooses how he tells it should watson be living in a separate house or should he still be there every day in the now sam you said that having read all of the stories recently this was the only one that stood out to you that you clearly remembered what what was it about this one i the the villain hudson was so creepy that he just he always stuck out and the fact that he just like shows up one day and he's like hey give me a job and gets a job and then you know just he just he was bizarre and weird and i thought i had it figured out and i did not have it figured out so Oh. That was disappointing. But that's in part because there's no real mystery in this Right, one there isn't out. much of a mystery. And yet, I still didn't figure it out. <laughs> Conan Doyle in this one, he is kind of, even though he's doing this kind of like flashback, it's told from Hum's perspective, which is new, he does do some of his like tried and true moves. One of which is like, well, for the second half, somebody else is going to tell their story that happened way mm. back when, which he does in both the first novels mm-hmm. and in some of the other short stories. This one's really similar in a lot of ways to um, the Boscombe Valley mystery, where it's just like, I used to be in Australia and some stuff went down there and I left it and I thought that'll never come back to haunt me again. And then it does. Mm-hmm. And in a much, much more drawn out and horrible way. Conan Doyle loves this like, these stories of people who leave England for the whatever colony Britain has at the time. Some go to India, Afghanistan, Australia. Uh, mm-hmm. He loves South Africa. Um, and then I came back and the reper- I brought repercussions back to England with me. Mm-hmm. It's kind of a thing he does a lot. It should be noted. This is, this is going to be a regular feature. <laughs> 
Uh, maybe we'll get a theme song for it. It's time for what Conan Doyle got wrong. Ooh. <laughs> um, there's a couple things that don't make sense in this one. Um, and these are ones that I noticed. I'm sure other people might notice others because Conan Doyle loves to get things wrong. Old Trevor writes a conf- writes at the end of his confession a short note saying, I just got a note from Beddoes. The jig is up. Mm. Mm-hmm. But just moment, but just early in the story, Tre- young Trevor says the moment he read the letter, he had a stroke and has been in a stupor ever since. So when did he write the extra little note <laughs> at the end? Which brings about my theory that Conan Doyle never went back and reread what he wrote. <laughs> you know, the joys of pulp fiction, you just... Write it and yeah, he was go. like he was like L. Ron Hubbard. First draft, last draft, yep. last draft. Get it out the door. It's mm-hmm. done. Mm-hmm. Um, the other one, uh, which uh, well, th- this this is not one that I caught. This is this is one that uh, the internet told me of. of. So, uh, old Trevor says that the glorious Scott left left Falmouth thirty years ago, and that the year it left was precisely eighteen fifty five which would mean the story could not have happened when Holmes was at college because it's already been established in other years that by 1885, Holmes was already in practice Mm. doing his thing. (laughs) So, uh, you know, but Conan Conan Doyle probably at the beginning of the story was like, this story will take place during his college days. And then as he got further into it, it was like, I need there to have been a reason why they were on a Maybe I'll, there you go. Uh, I don't know. Some some people might have their kids listen to this with them, so we should probably refrain. Um, and so I need an excuse for that. Crimean War, 1855. Boom. Got it. <laughs> and the chronology goes out the window. <laughs> As discrepancies go, finding only two in this one, that's pretty good for Conan Doyle's yeah, record. It's yeah. not bad. Yeah. All right. Well, any final thoughts? Anything? Other things, getting nods, lots of... We've been recording for a very long time at this point, and we are tired. Um, Well, thank you again, uh, everybody, for downloading this, listening. Um, If uh, you think that this is a wonderful thing and worth people's while, please post on social media Mm -hmm. or uh, just tell your friends, hey... This is a thing. It's available. Uh, You can find us on patreon.com slash Baker Street Readers. And we will see you next time in the adventure of the Crooked Man.